This episode of Industry Focus is brought to you by Molecule, the world's first molecular air purifier that reduces symptoms for allergy and asthma sufferers. For $75 off your first order, visit molekule.com and enter the discount code FOOL. Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market every day. I'm your healthcare host, Christine Hargis, and I've got my usual sidekick, Todd Campbell, calling in. It is May 16th, and we're smack in the middle of an international theme week here on Industry Focus. Because we're a U.S.-based podcast talking about the U.S. stock market, we spend most of our time talking about domestic companies. But there's a whole world of stocks out there, and no portfolio is truly diversified without international exposure. So, this week, we decided to change things up by focusing on international stories. We'll start our show today with a high-level overview of how the drug approval process works in Europe, noting the key ways in which it's different from the U.S. system and why it matters to your portfolio. Then we'll turn to Sanofi, France's largest drug maker. But first things first, what do our listeners need to know about drug approval in Europe? Well, it's a little bit different than it is in the U.S. I mean, there's some nuances that you know people ought to be aware of. Um, I think, Christy, one of the things that that might be helpful to listeners just to put things into context and add, you know to add on to what you've already said is just how big the market is for medicine in Europe. Because I think that you know we tend in the U.S. as U.S. investors to look at the U.S. market and recognize that yeah, the U.S. market in dollar terms is the biggest market in the plant on the planet, right? But the European market is still incredibly significant. There are seven. 141 million people who live in Europe, Christine. Yeah, it's not insignificant. And so it's it's something that even if you are looking at domestic companies, US-based companies, they still are probably going to have some European exposure because if you can get a drug approved in the United States, a lot of people consider our standards the strictest, then you might as well go ahead and look to get it approved internationally as well. Right. In the olden times, uh, European approval was done on a decentralized basis. So you had to go to each individual country. You can imagine what a pain in the butt that would be, right? I mean, I got to get impro- approved in Switzerland. I've got to get approved in the UK. I've got to get approved in Germany. I've got to get approved in Sweden, Finland, et cetera, et cetera. And, um, you know, the, obviously that, that wasn't the most efficient system. However, since the European Union was formed, um, they've set up a regulatory process over in the EU in the 90s that's a little bit similar to the the uh, Food and Drug Administration here in the United States in that it provides a centralized review process. Now, again, we talked about this nuances that people have to be aware of um, between the two the, between the two um, um, I guess ap- approaches to approval. Um, but I think that what what's helpful maybe is to know that. On a clinical trial basis, in the U.S., you have to um, get approval to begin clinical trials with the FDA. Uh, in Europe, it's still done on a decentralized country-by-country basis. Once those trials are complete, however, the uh, application, the new drug application, would get submitted to the EMA, which is the centralized body that will um, consider the approval of any drugs for member countries in Europe. Um, Similarly, in the U.S., you would submit it to the FDA for approval. Once it's submitted, both agencies have their own independent review mechanisms. So in the U.S., maybe they convene a group of experts and have an advisory committee meeting. Well, similarly, in 
the EU, they would convene a group of experts there to offer up an opinion. And then again, in both of those systems, the regulatory body doesn't have to listen to the advisors, but usually they do. Exactly. And so in many ways, there are parallels between the FDA and the EMA, the European Medicines Agency. But where the system really starts to differentiate itself is what happens after that central agency says, yes, this drug can be approved. In the United States, after that, you're pretty much good to go. You can get on the market and start selling it. But In Europe, the key difference to note is that the drug makers must then go nation by nation to get reimbursement approval. And that's because in these countries, since there is a centralized universal health insurance program, it's the government itself that's going to wind up paying for these drugs. And so they want to be able to negotiate a price. And if the price isn't deemed worth it or that for whatever reason they don't want to cover this drug, they don't have to. And that's a conversation that the drug maker must have country by country. Right. You know, if you look at the studies of the review times that it takes for drugs that are, you know, filed for approval in the U.S. to win an OK versus in Europe to win an OK, um, the U.S. typically comes in a little bit faster, but they're not they're not too much different as far as, you know, how long it takes to get a drug approval. But I think that what you're talking about with the individual uh, ob- obtaining reimbursement that's kind of maybe what shifts more people or more companies to say, you know what, I'm going to focus on the U.S. first because you're right. You know, winning approval for reimbursement in each one of these member states can be, you know, a time consuming and arduous process. Probably the best example of that, Christine, is what happens in the United Kingdom, right? Yep. Yeah, the United Kingdom has the has NICE, right, which is a regulatory body whose sole function is to look at the value that's created by drugs that have been approved for use in the European Union. And then based upon determining value, and they use a, a, a statistical formulas to determine that, they'll, deter- they'll decide whether or not it, they agree to reimburse for it. So oftentimes you end up with situations where, yeah, we've you know, crossed all our T's and dotted all our I's, jumped over all our hurdles, overcome all our obstacles and won approval in Europe, But NICE says, nope, your drug is priced too high for the value that we believe it adds to our, 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 you know, population. And there's kind of an interesting philosophical rabbit hole you can go down here regarding how exactly you do come up with that calculation. Like you said, Todd, it's completely statistical. It's based on the quality of adjusted life year metric or the quality. And it then fixes a price to that to say, well, how much is a life year worth? How much as a government do we want to pay for a drug that gives somebody one more year or the quality adjusted is maybe it's multiple years, but they're not quite at full health. And so then you adjust for that. And so there's, I don't know, there's just a lot to think about there. And I don't want to unpack that too much because I think we could probably do an entire episode on that. But it is an interesting differentiation between how things work in the United States, where you do sometimes see private payer pushback on prices, but it's completely different than seeing it in a centralized location. 
Yeah, and I think that that's kind of the hiccup. I mean, if you're looking at it and saying, what is the biggest difference between these two marketplaces, that would be it. It's the fact that in the U.S. it's fully centralized, and then, of course, it goes to the private payers or to Medicare or whatever to negotiate pricing. But the drugs are typically available, and, and those conversations usually happen relatively quickly. But in Europe, because you have all of these different you know, you know, know, cooks in the kitchen, it becomes a much longer process and sometimes a little bit more difficult process. So I think that from an investing standpoint, what investors want to know is that, okay, if I hear that a drug has been approved in the European Union by the EMA, I, I guess I probably shouldn't jump to think that we're going to start seeing meaningful revenue in Europe right away. You know, it'll probably be best to model you know, a benefit from European sales as occurring over a course of maybe one to three years. Yep, absolutely. But still can be interesting for some of the drugs that are approved first in the EU, which is not as common, but it can sometimes be an indicator of how a drug might fare over in the US. One place in particular where we get that sort of perspective is with biosimilars. Um, these, our listeners that uh, are familiar with the show will know, are a more complex form of generic drugs for uh, biologic drugs, which are more complex treatments. And so biosimilars are not like your traditional generics because they're not identical. And so it's a little bit trickier to evaluate whether or not it actually is a perfect or close enough to perfect substitute for the original therapy. So the biosimilar approval process has been in place for a lot longer in Europe than it has in the United States. In the U.S., the framework was first enacted in 2009, and the first approval of a biosimilar didn't come until 2015. But meanwhile, across the pond, the first approval was granted in 2006, which is one year after a framework was created for this. And so there are many more biosimilars approved in the EU than in the U.S., and so while domestically we're still kind of looking at these first few that have been approved and seeing what the trends are in pricing discounts because a non-branded drug is going to be cheaper, but the question is how much cheaper since it is still a very complex drug. Um, and just looking at adoption rates and all the other questions around biosimilars, it can be helpful to look at how things have fared in Europe first. Absolutely. And perhaps, Christine, it's this the, the, their adoption of biosimilars uh, and that pace of adoption being so much faster than here in the U.S. is due to the fact that they approach um, medicine with more of a budget focus. I have a fixed pool of money in my country that I can spend on care. Um, therefore, you know, if I can, you know, decrease the amount I spend on this expensive biologic by, you know, instead recommending the use of this biosimilar that's cheaper, well, that frees up more money for me then to spend on these other new drugs that are being, you know, coming through and, and winning approval by the EMA. So, you know, I, I think that, you know, there's definitely some differences on that front. I, I believe that biosimilars will eventually gain a foothold here, similar to what we saw with small molecule drugs. I think we're in the 1990s um, in, in, you know, if you compare the two and where we are timeline was in biosimilars. And my expectation would be that you'll see biosimilars demand ramp up relatively rapidly over the course of the next five or 10 years. But again, still trailing what we've seen so far in the European Union for sales. That's obviously the, the most attractive market for the main manufacturers of biosimilars to win an okay in right now. Yep, for sure. 
This episode of Industry Focus is brought to you by Molecule. Molecule is the world's first molecular air purifier that reduces symptoms for allergy and asthma sufferers. Molecule has introduced a breakthrough science that is finally capable of destroying air pollutants at the molecular level. Molecule makes a real difference for asthma and allergy sufferers, helping them better cope with their conditions and significantly reducing their symptoms. One customer has reportedly said that after using Molecule in her home, that she was able to breathe through her nose for the first time in 15 years. Molecule is easy to use and has a clean and sleek design. From the materials used on your device, like its sleek solid aluminum shell, to a filter subscription service where filters regularly arrive on your doorstep when you need them. We got to try Molecule for ourselves, and we were super impressed. It's right in the middle of allergy season in Alexandria, and the purifier worked wonders to alleviate symptoms. For $75 off your first order, visit molekule.com and enter the promo code FOOL. That's molekule.com and promo code FOOL. Transitioning to the back half of the show, we're going to be digging into the French drug maker Sanofi, which is listed on the New York Stock Exchange under the ticker SNY. They're a $94 billion market cap company. They pay a heck of a dividend, yielding about 4.6%. And the share price has been beaten pretty badly by the market over the last year or so. They're down 25%. 2017 was widely recognized as a transition year for the company. We'll cover their future plans and weigh in on our opinion of the company's prospects. But first, let's do a little bit of history and get a sense of why they need a transition to begin with. It was interesting, Christine, about talking about Sanofi and doing the background to, to prepare for this show. Is you know thinking about how how few investors probably own this company in their portfolio. I mean, you just reeled off some pretty crazy numbers, $95 billion market cap company with nearly a 5% dividend yield, about 35 billion uh, euros in in annual sales, yet not very widely owned relative to maybe some of these other biopharma stocks that we tend to talk about on the show. And perhaps the reason for that is that there's been a lot of concern over the last couple of years of how Sanofi would navigate patent expiration specifically the expiration of patents that protect Lantus, their top-selling diabetes drug that prior to losing patent uh, exclusivity was raking in at about $7 billion a year in sales. Yeah, that was a ginormous drug. And so there was a lot of concern when it went off patent in 2015. But that wasn't all. They also had Plavix, which was the second best-selling drug in the world for years. And that lost protection back in 2012. Uh, There was also Lovenox, which is a slightly smaller drug. But still, uh, when they lost the patent for that in the late 2000s, it ended up costing them a couple billion dollars in sales annually. And so management looks at at all these uh, roadblocks up ahead, and they decided that they were going to bring in a new CEO in 2014. Come 2017, they're like, okay, this is the year. We're going to turn things around. So they ended up uh, solidifying their focus into five different business units, effective January 1st of 2017. And so now it's 2018, and we get to look back and see, well, how did that transition year go? Yeah, I, I think that most investors would look at it and 
and kind of yawn over the results. I mean, if you back out the uh, effects of currency and currency, we can't. I'm talking. This is a global show today, right? We're talking international stocks today. Um, probably Santa Fe is one of the most diversified in terms of where it gets its revenue from. It it gets um, you know more more sales in the U.S. than anywhere else. About 34% of its revenue comes from the U.S., but it still gets 27% of its sales in Europe and 29% of its sales in emerging markets. And converting all of that currency back um, into euros can get kind of uh, expensive and provides. And right now, it's that's creating some some headwinds to. to the company's progress in improving its revenue year over year last year when all the puts and takes were considered we were talking about relatively flat growth when you back out the effects of those of that currency conversion if you look at each of the five business units um, some are performing better than others the way that they broke it out is you know they have one group which is they refer to as Santa Fe Genzyme that's their oncology and immunology business uh, last year that did about 6.7 billion in euros uh, for sales, you know, that has drugs like multiple sclerosis drugs, some rare disease drugs like pomp disease, uh, hemophilia drugs, which we'll get to in a little bit, that they added with their acquisition of BioVerative. Um, their second group is Santa Fe Pastor, uh, that did about 5.1 billion euros in sales last year. The third group is the diabetes and cardiovascular uh, drug business that did 6.9 billion in euros last year. Um, the consumer business that they have, they're actually the, in a top three globally in um, consumer medicine. Uh, that did about 4.8 billion euros in 2017. And then if you look at the emerging markets business and what they call general medicines, that's a $14 billion business uh, with about 10 billion euros coming from uh, emerging markets. So when you look at where this company stands right now, it's pretty clear that they are trying to ignite some growth, and you can tell what their priorities are, particularly by looking at uh, how they've spent money on acquisitions recently. They acquired BioVerative for $11.6 billion in cash. We covered this back in January on the 24th, if anybody wants to go back and find that episode. But this was a very splashy acquisition for a number of reasons. First of all, it was a 64% premium to the prior close. And meanwhile, this had just been, BioVerative had just been spun off from Biogen. And so <laughs> something that we questioned on our show is, well, why didn't Sanofi just go buy it directly from Biogen before the spinoff? But anyway, more of our thoughts on that on the January episode. But the point here is that it really solidifies that they are focusing on hemophilia. Yeah, and that's a big growth market, billions of dollars uh, in sales spent every year on, on trying to help these people with these bleeding disorders. And what BioVerative has, has done is created um, new treatments that reduce patient burden by reducing the number of injections that they have to take per month. Obviously, that's a win for patients and, and sales of Aprilix and uh, Electate, which are the two drugs that got approved for hemophilia A and B, um, those sales of those drugs have really taken off. If you look at 2017 alone, um, the company generated, BioVerative uh, generated about $1.17 in sales, and that was up 32% year over year. But that's not the only way that they're trying to refocus and, and kind of spark some growth back into the company, right, Christine? They're also having, um, they also have some intriguing um, relationships with other companies. Regeneron jumps to mind 
um, the 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 two companies have been collaborating together to create new drugs. And you know they've they've brought a few to market now. They've brought Proluent, which is a cholesterol lowering drug, to market. They've also won approval for uh, a drug for eczema and another drug for rheumatoid arthritis. And you know I think that those kind of collaborations. Um, they view as as being, you know, for the most part, a win because it, it injects some of that some of that growth that can that can offset some of the headwinds associated with Lantus. They're also increasing the spending on R and D. You know, I think they increased spending on R and D. Uh, I want to say by like nine percent, high single digits, something like that, uh, to about five point five billion last year. And again, that's a that's a good sign as well because you know if you don't have a full pipeline of drugs, um, we know that a lot of drugs and pipelines are going to fail, you're going to have to spend more to have that pipeline nice and full so that a few wins come out on the bottom. And they do have a fairly full pipeline. They have 28 different projects that are in phase three or submitted for approval, and that's across a huge range of different indications. You mentioned partnerships, and I want to call out one more, probably just because I have a bias of liking this company, but Alnylam. Um, they are an RNAi uh, platform company. So they have had a partnership with Sanofi since 2014. Sanofi has full rights now to a drug called Fetuserim, which is a drug for hemophilia, again, and rare bleeding disorders. It had a bit of a hiccup previously uh, with the FDA, putting it on hold temporarily, but now it's back and starting up in phase three. This drug could be a, a fairly sizable one, a, at least a billion-dollar blockbuster many people are anticipating um, when and if it gets approved. Um, Alnylam will get royalties on it, but they're in the 15 to 30% range, so not a huge chunk. So really, a, a, a potential win here for Sanofi primarily. They also are doing some interesting things in digital health. They have a partnership with Verily on something called Ondu, which is a virtual diabetes clinic that's focused on education and disease management. As we know about diabetes, it's some, a disease that, when not managed well, can really escalate and have a lot of complications. So the better you can educate patients with the disease and make comprehensive treatment plans for them, the better the outcomes are. They're also an investor in Science 37, which is attempting to bring clinical trials into people's homes through telemedicine so that you don't have to travel far and wide to get to a clinical trial location. And of course, this is particularly an opportunity in rare diseases where you might need, as a company running a clinical trial, to be recruiting from far and wide because there just aren't a lot of patients with the disease to study. And so if you can bring that directly to people in their homes, I could see how that would be a really interesting innovation. Yeah, but the vast majority of people, Christine, don't live in those medical um, clusters, mm -hmm. uh, places like Boston, Massachusetts, or whatever, where a lot of these trials are conducted. So you're right, bringing, you know, bringing the trial to the patient where the patient lives and letting them continue to receive care by their primary care doctor is an interesting approach that could speed along development for their rare disease uh, business. Yep. Um, Todd, I know you pulled guidance numbers for 2018. Can you share those? Sure. Uh, for the first, in the first quarter of 2018, they put out their guidance. They, 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 they think that this, that they are going to, this is the year they say that they will return to X currency business income growth, right? That's a mouthful. 2% to 5% would be right. Um, so, you know, this is the year if you back at all the currency, they think that they're going to start earning more money. And then hopefully from here on out, they'll be able to grow year after year after year using some of these platforms and relationships and acquisitions, leveraging them 
um, for, for sales growth. I mean, I, I think that the devil will be in the details, right? We, you talked about the Alnilam um, trial uh, that was halted for four months because of a patient death. They restarted it after making some concessions in the way that they were monitoring patients. We'll see data from that trial in the second half of 2019. And you're right, that could reshape hemophilia treatment because, again, reduces patient further, fur, burden further because that drug is only dosed once per month. The company also recently bought a, a, a Belgian uh, company called Ablinks for about four billion. That has a nanobody drug platform, and you know, uh, an approval is expected for one of its drugs for a rare blood disorder at some point in the near future too. So we'll have to see how that goes. And then, of course, looking at label expansions, they think that Dupixent, which is their eczema drug, maybe that wins approval in asthma, could be uh, effective in some other um, disease indications as well in autoimmunity. Um, and they're also hoping to get the FDA to add uh, some safe long-term cardiovascular outcome data for their proluent, which is the cholesterol-busting drug. As a refresher, that drug did demonstrate the ability to reduce heart attacks and stroke um, within its long-term study. So that could also provide a catalyst. Those are probably more 2019 issues, though. Yeah, I think if I were an investor in this company, I would be a lot more optimistic about the label expansions than necessarily the strategy of acquiring other companies. I mean, I, I was fairly surprised to hear about the Applinks acquisition earlier this year. It seemed like a pretty large amount to pay. It was, I think, almost five billion U.S. dollars um, for this drug that has a, an experimental treatment for rare rare blood disorders, and that was after their very expensive acquisition of Bioveritive. Now. This is a company that has about 15 billion euro in debt and 10 billion euro in cash. So I don't know. I, I think I would rather see them focus on their currently owned assets and see what they can do there to generate a little bit more cash before spending even further. But I also I like what they're doing at the partnerships. I do think that that's smart strategy. Yeah, and Christine, you know, yeah, the debt debt's never a good thing. But I mean, they're able to get that debt pretty cheap and at a pretty and they generate enough cash flow where I'm not really concerned about that necessarily. But you're right, though, that you know a lot of times people question whether or not these acquisitions really pay off. Um, and you know, only time will tell on on these. Yep, absolutely. Any final thoughts before we sign off? I think Sanofi is an in, is an intrigue. I use this word a lot, right? Intriguing stock to consider owning. And <clears throat> the reason I say that is that because it's a global company, it's got big exposure. It's actually the, the market share leader in China um, because it's got exposure all, all across the world and it generates a lot of cash flow. I, I'm not really concerned about its debt. And that dividend, Christine, that's, that's a pretty, that's a pretty uh, nice dividend yield. If they do indeed, if 2017 was the transition year, in the back half of this year, they deliver on their goal to return to business income growth. I, I could see putting this into an income portfolio. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of a value play. It's, it's been beaten up, which is why that dividend looks so juicy right now. So, yeah, I mean, I, for all the reasons that you just listed, the international exposure and that really solid dividend, which, by the way, has been increasing for 24 years. So, it, it is a dependable dividend. Um, I can see those being reasons to be interested in this stock. One housekeeping note before we sign off, if you're going to be in the Washington, D.C. area on Wednesday, May 30th, we're having a listener meetup happy hour. Shoot me an email at industryfocus at fool.com for more details. 
As always, people on the program may have interests in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. The show is produced by Austin Morgan. I'm Christine Hargis, and on behalf of myself, Austin, and Todd Campbell, thanks for listening, and Fool on. Fool on.